Terror sympathizers plus your typical green-haired social justice flavor of the week warriors desecrated and vandalized historic monuments in D.C. over the weekend. But let me guess, the outright support of a terror organization and the anti-Semitism reverberating around the nation's capital was just mostly peaceful justice. Well, I've got Trump religious advisor Pastor Daryl Scott on deck to discuss. Plus, does reality television need a reckoning? Or should grown-ass adults be responsible for their own behavior on and off camera? Well, I've got former Bachelor star Sean Booth here in studio to react. Last, you know I have some final thoughts. The show starts now. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. What happens when, for decades and generations, you welcome people into this country who hate this country? Answer this. Yes, in the name of freeing Palestine, what appears to be thousands of so-called protesters amassed in our nation's capital and outside the White House to call for a ceasefire, but more accurately, to desecrate and vandalize monuments. You know, the usual. Among the monu monuments to face were the Andrew Jackson statue in front of the White House, the General Marquis de Lafayette statue in Lafayette Park, the Benjamin Franklin statue, and the White House barrier. These protesters also surrounded the White House and chanted ye old holiday greeting, Allah Akbar. Is it just me, or does it appear these people are just recycled BLMers with a new cause? Seems to me that the Occupy Wall Streeters turned into the BLMers, turned into the Pride Paraders, turned into the Climate Change Warriors, turned into the Free Palestiners. Same losers, different cause. Don't get me wrong, some of these people are indeed terror sympathizers and a product of free-for-all immigration where we import people from around the world who hate us, but at least a solid quarter of these people are just recycled from other causes. They don't really know why they do what they do other than the exhilaration they get from getting out of their mom's basement for an evening and being able to live out their favorite video game fantasies in real life. I feel bad for these people, I sincerely do, because they are lost souls and the misfits of society. And now that Pokemon Go isn't a thing anymore, this is all they have and really their only means of human interaction. 
So we pray for these people from a distance, of course. Joining me now with his take on this and more is Trump's senior religious advisor, Pastor Daryl Scott. Pastor Scott, I saw you nodding your head during that opening segment there. I'm sure, as I did, you saw, you know, the mostly peaceful mayhem and calling for Allah Akbar, you know, Antifada outside the White House. Uh, miraculously, not an insurrection, as we knew. But what's your take on what we saw over the weekend at the White House? Well, I concur with you. First of all, thanks for having me on. And I concur with you wholeheartedly. These people are protesting just for the sake of protest. It's like if they don't have anything to piss and moan about, they don't have any meaning to their life. And it's like you said, what's the protest of the day? Now they're backing um, Palestine and they're acting as if Palestine is, the, the Palestinians are some type of captives or something. And now they want to free Palestine, but free Palestine from what? You know, and, and it's ridiculous. And now it seems as if the chickens are coming home to roost. Because while this was going on under a Republican presidency, you know, there was a big problem with it. But now this is happening on uh, Joe Biden's watch. The media really, or the White House really doesn't know how to respond to it. So they're, they're handling it with kid gloves. But it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, there's still red paint on the gates outside of the White House. They know that they were, you know, disobeying Secret Service and and trying to really force their way in. Again, I think that's the definition of an insurrection by their definition that they've been using since January 6th, but apparently not an issue. I actually saw earlier today on Twitter, on, on X, that uh, there are several reporters from the mainstream media that alluded to these demonstrations, and they said that these people were just very passionate, the passionate demonstrations over the weekend, calling for a ceasefire because they want innocent people's lives to be saved. You know, I know that obviously you're a scholar of the Bible, you're a scholar of religion. Can you please enlighten my audience as to what you believe would happen if Israel were to just cease fire as all of these idiots seem to be calling for? If Israel were to cease fire and or lay down their arms, it would mean the destruction of that entire nation. You know, Hamas has avowed a statement of, I'll say, uh, intent is the complete and utter annihilation of Israel. And, you know, here's what people don't understand. This is not necessarily a war over real estate. It's not a dispute over real estate. It's a dispute over religion. It's the God of Islam versus the God of the Bible, the God of Judaism. And they do not want that Jewish presence in their midst. If Israel had a widespread conversion to Islam right now, a national conversion to Islam right now, the entire dispute would be over. But they just cannot stand the idea of this Jewish state right in the midst of these Islamic nations. And that's what the actual conflict is over. If Israel ceases fire right now, Hamas won't cease fire. In fact, Hamas said, we'll do it again and again and again and again. If it's not Hamas, it was ISIS. If it wasn't ISIS, it was the PLO. I mean, this goes back. And here's what I find funny, um, Tommy. You had Obama's, I'm going to watch my language right now, but he went out and he termed Israel's presence in the Middle East as an occupation. Now, Israel immigrated to the Middle East in 19, well, a little bit before 1948, but in mass in 1948, under, it was a UN-sanctioned legal immigration to escape and avoid persecution throughout Europe. They're calling that an occupation. But for those that want to flood over our southern borders illegally, 
to seek, they call them asylum seekers and refugees. Notice the difference in terminology. And you see this abject, overt racism on the side of the Democratic Party in regards to anti-Semitism. And it's it's ridiculous. It's it's the pot calling the kettle black in a lot of different occasions. And they feel very validated in, in what they're doing because they do hide under this guise of free Palestine. And it's easy for them to say that they want liberation for people. Uh, very interesting that it took a terror attack on Israel for these people to suddenly care about Palestine that wasn't even on their radar until Hamas carried out an attack on Israel. Very interesting how this all works, but you and I are on the same page. A lot of these people are just out there because they have, quite frankly, nothing better to do. They don't right. go to work. They don't take showers. This is all they have. But you also brought up something that I thought was very interesting. You tweeted it out uh, last week, I believe it was, and you alluded to some biblical references here that people need to understand when trying to grasp everything that's going on, people that aren't familiar with Islam, people that aren't familiar with the Bible, people that aren't familiar with the history and really the prophecy of everything that's going on here. And I have that tweet there, and you talked about the Antichrist and how he will reveal himself. Can you please explain what you were talking about in this tweet to my audience for those who haven't seen anything like this before? Well, according to the Bible, uh, if you cross-reference the book of Daniel with the book of Revelations, the Antichrist will rise, well, we teach eschatologically that he will rise after the rapture of the church. But, you know, if you, if you study it, the Bible says that he will broker a peace between Israel and their main antagonist. It will be a seven-year non-aggression treaty that they sign. He will be the architect of that, which will cause everyone to hail him as a, an international statesman and diplomat. Uh, midway through that seven-year time period, that will initiate the great tri the tribulation. But midway through that seven-year time period, three and a half years in, he will break that non-aggression pact. He will turn on Israel, and that will usher in uh, the, the great tribulation. But we see that he will be a state man. According to the Bible, he will uh, probably be Jewish from Syria or in the Syrian portion of, uh, well, the Syrian portion of uh, the old Grecian empire. But he will come in and he will be trusted. He will broker this peace agreement, which he will ultimately break, bringing Israel to the brink of total annihilation, which we believe will usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in talking about that, would you, I guess, speculate that this is something that's on the horizon with everything that you're seeing? Or do you think this is just something to look out for in the future or, or maybe just a cautionary a lesson for those that aren't familiar with the Bible and what it teaches? I believe it's a precursor. It's not the immediate conflict itself, but it is a precursor to it. The Bible talks about the beginning of sorrows, and that word sorrows literally means birth pains. It's like a birth pains. These things are picking up in intensity. I believe the next great event on the prophetic calendar of the Christian church is the rapture. And after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist will be revealed. I believe there will be uh, another tricontinent war, which will consolidate certain nations into a confederacy, which the Antichrist will uh, have the lead over. But if you're a believer, you won't, we won't be around to see these things if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, which we do. But this is a precursor. It is going to pick up in intensity. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. There'll be no quick fix. There's not going to be an immediate solution to this. It's going to get worse until, once again, the Antichrist brokers that non-aggression treaty. 
Uh, and then that's going to really hasten events to what we believe to be the second coming of Jesus Christ to rescue Israel. Wow. Yeah, this is good lessons, good things. You know, uh, a lot of people have been talking about a rapture and the coming of the Antichrist for, for many, many years now. Different things, different people get elected and, you know, different segments of the population hail them the Antichrist. And a lot of times it's just, you know, a way to demonize our enemies and our political opponents. But actually looking at everything that's going on, whether you believe in what you're talking about or whether you're just seeing the writing on the wall with our enemies growing stronger and consolidating their power, Russia, Iran, North Korea, uh, you name it, they're all getting stronger. China, of course. Interesting also that these people in the streets for free Palestine don't seem to care about those in China who are being persecuted on a daily basis. I don't see them in the streets. Uh, I don't see our basketball players in the streets protesting against Nike and China. Uh, but it's all interesting, you know, the selective outrage. But speaking of selective outrage, Pastor, I want to turn now to 2024 because I know that that's a hot topic for you. It's a hot topic for me. We're about a year away. And I want to get your take on this. Zelensky, uh, I don't like the man. I think he's a snake. But he now, in an effort to resurrect his attention that's been taken off of him for the last month or so, he is now calling on your friend and our former president, Donald Trump, to come to Ukraine. Let's take a listen, and then I want your thoughts. So I invite President Trump. If he can come here, I will need 24 minutes. Yes, 24 minutes, not more. Yes, not more, 24 minutes to explain President Trump that he can't manage this war. He can't bring peace because of the Putin. Because of the Putin. Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump, though, Donald Trump oversaw an administration where Russia did not invade Ukraine, Crimea, as we saw during the Obama years. Miraculously, a Democrat gets back in office and our enemies all grow stronger. Interesting how that works. But what do you think of Zelensky there, thinking that Donald Trump would not be able to provide a solution to what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? Well, first of all, I think Zelensky is an attention hound and he's noticed that his Ukrainian-Russian war has been pushed, so to speak, to the, to the background while this Israeli-Hamas um, conflict is in the foreground. And so now he comes out, Donald Trump said, if he were president, he would bring an immediate end to the war. Now you wanna invite him over to talk about the Putin and, and all of that. If you really want to see him that bad, get his number and call him if you really want to talk to him. You can talk to him on Zoom. You can FaceTime him if you really, really want to discuss with him that much. You know, Zelensky is seeing that in his mind, that's my money going over to Israel. <laughs> that's, that's money that could have right. been spent with me going somewhere else. Uh, I really don't care for Zelensky. I think he's an actor. I think he's too much trying to be in the public eye rather than to manage this war that that he's in. Now, President Trump said he could bring a solution to it, elect me president and, and, and watch what I do. And we either take him at his word or we don't. But Zelensky, we, we've heard enough from you. We don't want to hear anymore. Yeah, I agree. He just has to be in the headlines. He just has to be soaking up mm -hmm. the attention. He's very upset that it hasn't been all about him for the last couple of weeks, though President Biden does want to send him more money than even Israel would get in the middle of them trying to defend their nation and their, you know, entirety of their population. 
So he's still getting money. He's always going to get money. I have no doubt about that as long as the Uniparty is in charge. So in closing, that's what I want to ask you about next. You know, there's some polls came out over the weekend showing President Biden low approval ratings, showing him losing certain swing states. I know that you're very confident in President Trump being able to win a general election in 2024. Are you still as confident today as you were a couple months ago when the indictments were fresh and the power of mega was on the forefront of everyone's mind? Are you still feeling good a year away from Election Day? I feel actually I feel better than I felt prior to the 2020 election because, you know, we had COVID raising, we had Black Lives Matter doing all of that stuff. We had a lot of um, uh, negativity against President Trump that was, you know, promoted and fomented by the, the left. But this time, you know, they're on the defense. One thing I said when President Trump lost in 2020, I said, now we can go on the offense rather than being on defense. Sometimes the defense can be on the field too long. It gets tired, if you know anything about football. And I believe he's in a very great position right now. A lot of people are being disillusioned with Biden, especially a lot of Black people. I mean, I talked to my barber, who, who was very, very anti-Trump three years ago. And now even he's saying that the country is in bad shape under Biden. And everyone is almost like anybody but him. So if Trump is the candidate, we're going to him. But Biden has this this country in such bad shape that I think Trump is in better condition now. He's in a better position now than he was actually going into the 2020 election. I think you're right. I still don't think Biden's going to be the nominee, but that's a conversation for another day. I think that he's on his way out. I think any day, any week now, we're going to get that announcement. I think the writing's on the wall. But Pastor Scott, as always, I appreciate your honesty, your transparency, your passion, your fire, and I hope to talk to you real soon. Thanks, Tommy. God bless you. God bless. What was supposed to be some bombshell article, Vanity Fair, in collaboration with current and former reality stars, attempted to drive a stake into the heart of America's favorite pastime, reality television, and pledged the beginning of a Real Housewives reckoning. This lengthy expose took a deep dive into the world of reality TV and explored the underbelly of what it takes to make unscripted TV worth a watch, from carefully curated drama to encourage alcoholism, racism, and more. But is it as bad and as exploitive as Bethany Frankel and Posse make it seem? Or should grown adults be able to manage themselves and the expectations of their jobs with a little more personal accountability? Who better to ask than reality veteran, season 11, Bachelorette alum, and host of In the Booth, Sean Booth. So, Sean, you come from the Bachelor world. So now Bravo is kind of getting the spotlight now. Some mm -hmm. shady things going on over there. But originally it was the Bachelor and Bachelorette that were getting into hot water over kind of the, the forced drinking or the being up all night long and, and not having much food. What can you tell us about this process? Because some of these reality stars would make it seem as if it was, you know, a hostage situation. I feel like it wasn't. But then again, I don't know. Yeah, no, definitely not a hostage situation. Um, that whole alcohol thing came out after my season. We did have plenty of drinks on the show. And at the end of the day, we're all adults. And we signed up for it. Everybody always says, you signed up for it, you signed up for it. You don't really know what you're getting into. Was alcohol readily available at all times? Absolutely. I remember the first night of the show, they ask your favorite drink and they have people watching you at all times. If, if there's 20 people in there, somebody's watching you, and when your drink's gonna get a little bit lower, all of a sudden you see somebody come up to you with that same drink, like, here you go. So, but it's your choice, and nobody's making you drink. 
Right. Well, that sounds like good service to it's me. It's great service. Yeah. I mean, they don't do that at any restaurant here in Nashville. No. I'll tell you that much. You'll be waiting for a while to get a refill. That's true. But again, I would think that grown adults could manage themselves. Now, this expose in Vanity Fair that came out just before BravoCon, which was this weekend in Las Vegas, uh, you know, pretty much the biggest gathering of reality stars mm -hmm. and reality fans, I think probably in the world and ever, has been going on with this BravoCon. But this expose is supposed to be, you know, they're not getting residuals from streaming and these people's lives are being ripped apart and exploited for the cameras. As you said, though, it feels like you kind of sign up for that when you sign on to reality television. But how much of this is produced? How much of your mental health would you say is impacted by production and producers and a storyline? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is produced. And I always say what you see, like the, the connections are real. The relationships are real. But maybe it plays out a different way on TV for everybody at home to see. There's definitely a lot of editing. Um, and, but yeah, we sign up for it. It, is, it does take a toll on your mental health. I remember I went through every emotion possible uh, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, then you get thrown out into the world. You have to deal with this new found overnight 15 minutes of fame and everybody has their opinion in social media, as you know, can be a wild, mm -hmm. cruel place. Um, but it's definitely, it's not easy. It's not easy. As far as being produced, do they tell you what to say on The Bachelor? Do they tell you maybe what you should say or do they suggest things to say to make things more exciting? Is that a yeah. level of it, at least on The Bachelor side of things? Yeah, I would definitely say that they will steer you in a direction. And you can say something one way, then they'll probably ask you the same question in a different way, trying to get something out of you. Do you feel like with these other shows, with these Bravo shows, where it's it's not necessarily a dating show. It's not, you know, I kind of feel like The Bachelor, yeah. at least in recent years, has become more of like an influencer's jackpot, right. more so than a dating yeah. show anyway. But these Real Housewives shows, I'm sure you've seen them, I'm sure you've yeah. watched them. It's more about their lives. And for me watching it, even though I, I think I have a fairly interesting life, it seems like they gotta do something to make things more exciting. Because somebody's day-to-day -day life probably isn't that exciting for a viewing audience. So in this Vanity Fair article, they said producers would send text messages and you know with big letters or hold up big letters to get you to say things or to get you to bring something up to exploit somebody else. Mm. Do you feel like that's a part of what it takes to make good unscripted TV? Yeah, of course. I think production's a, a huge part. And I always say the Bachelor franchise, it's been around for, what, 20, 30 years? It still gets millions of views. They are the absolute best at what they do. Those producers are fantastic at their job. Did I hate them after the show at times? Yeah. But then it took, you know, years of finally getting past it and realizing the situation that I was in when I wasn't bitter anymore. And when I look at it now that I'm so far removed from it, I'm like, yeah, it was a TV show and they're really good at their job. And it was a business at the end of the day. It was naive for me to go into a setting like that and think that I could trust the producers. Um, I am a very loyal guy. I don't open up to a lot of people and I kind of picked one producer on the first night and I'm always like, that was my mistake because I feel like he had me wrapped around his finger when I should have just talked to all of them. But I'm like, no, nah, I trust this guy. And it's just, it's laughable now to think that I was trusting a producer. What made you want to go on The Bachelorette? 
Um, so I was actually here in Nashville, downtown, went to Honky Tonk Central, me and my buddies on a Tuesday night, and there were a ton of girls at Honky Tonk Central, they're all done up, we're like, this looks like a good place to be right now, turns out they were doing casting for The Bachelor, so all these girls were there trying to get on The Bachelor, I was approached by um, a casting lady talking about The Bachelorette, um, long story short, I just kind of was like, you know, I'm in a spot in my life don't really know where I want to go, what I want to do. I looked at it as an opportunity to travel, get some good friends. And I was working for an insurance company at the time. Um, never thought I was going to end up engaged. I told my family, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to come back engaged. And then 12 weeks later, I, I came back with a fiance. Do you feel like there was pressure to end up at that spot? That yeah. if you were in the real world yeah. and things weren't sped up, you yeah. would never get engaged in 12 weeks. Oh, yeah, of course. And also, you don't have any contact with the outside world. So you're stuck with your emotions, your feelings, and um, no cell phone, no TV, no music. You're in a house with other guys who are also dating the same girl. And you can't really talk about your feelings with people that you actually know and, and people that you trust. And um, it's very easy to end up counting on that person. So Caitlin, she was kind of my rock throughout it all, which is so weird to say. I never really got to see her, but the time that I did have with her, I was able to open up much quicker than you would in a normal situation, right? In the real world, you got all these games, texting, should I text back? Or, oh, I'm just gonna wait till tomorrow. Maybe I'll go on a date next weekend. It's so sped up there, and they want you talking about serious life things. So in that aspect, it was cool to be able to open up and get around all like the nitty-gritty BS stuff and form a relationship. Right. Yeah. And what do you attribute to uh, it not working out? Was it the timeline, different people? Yeah, I'd say different people. I think um, we just learned that we were not right for one another, and the show put a lot of strain on our relationship. It, definitely is not the best foundation for a relationship. Um, yeah, and we just weren't meant to be. On the other side of television, you mentioned social media. So yeah. ABC, The Bachelor, I mean, name a network. They went through it in 2020 where they had to clean house and get rid of anybody who's ever said anything yeah. questionable to a liberal ever in their life at mm -hmm. any point. So that happened, of course, on The Bachelor. Got Chris Harrison out. Mm -hmm. You have several controversies surrounding the cancel culture of 2020. Yeah. It has slowed down a little bit, but it's still very much there. Right. How much are you concerned about cancel culture as we sit here today and as you sit here with me, who yeah. could very well I know. get you canceled? I was going to say, uh, I might have to find a new career after yeah. this. Um, no, I think it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I, felt, I feel like everybody kind of fell into that trap. And, you know, were there things wrong in society? Of course. But I feel like everybody went into overcorrection mode and everybody got scared. So any company just had to do what they thought was right to save themselves. And like you said, I feel like it's kind of scaling back a little bit. Um, but yeah, cancel culture definitely is, is out of control. And like I was saying, I feel like uh, in today's society, it's sad that people with different views or opinions can't sit down together and they can't have a conversation. And if you don't agree with them, then, oh, screw that person, they're done, let's try and ruin them, ruin their lives, get their jobs away from them, anything possible to take them down, which is a sad, sad place to be. 
a sad place to be, but very much the reality of the situation. Very so much. many, many years ago, 2016, ahead of the presidential election, I briefly dated somebody that was on The Bachelor. I won't name names, no. but that person was terrified that yeah. if they were seen with me, that they would lose followers on Instagram, even though I had millions more followers yeah, than like, that person. Hey, you should probably post a photo with you. It was like, well, my agent is worried. I'm like, yeah. you have an agent because you were on The Bachelor? Um, it didn't seem right. like a real situation to me where people are so afraid of losing followers, but mm. Then, as life would turn out, I dated somebody who was very good friends with somebody who was in the Bachelor world, and they too were nervous about being seen with me because they were afraid they'd lose followers. So how much is followers and followership a currency in reality television and post-reality television? Yeah, I think that social media was just starting to boom like right around my season because I can genuinely say, and I know this for all the guys in my season, we all went there with the experience in mind. Like we didn't think that we're gonna come off the show and we get all these followers. And there was no business uh, before that on social media. So we went there with the right intentions. I think that that's why it the was- The right intentions to travel. To travel, <laughs> yeah, that's the true. Right yeah. Let's right just intentions. be honest. Yeah, the yeah, right yeah. intentions yeah. were Yeah, to we were there travel. for the right reason. <laughs> yeah. um, now it's definitely different, but when I got out of that world and I started getting all these followers and I started getting all these brand deals, I was very conscious of it. And then I was worried about it sometimes. And then I remember when I broke up with my fiance, I lost like hundreds of thousands of followers. And I was like, damn, that hurts. And I started putting too much emphasis on that. Um, but it wasn't until a few years ago, I'm like, screw that. Like, I don't care. It's, it's such a, a false reality. It's not even a real place, social media. So I don't focus on that anymore. Maybe it's because I'm a little bit older. I think a little bit wiser. I got some, I was going to say gray hairs in my beard, but I got my mustache from November. Check it out, Movember.com. Um, but yeah, people really care about it. And you can see that in the bachelor world. And I think that's why a lot of people hang on to the bachelor world. And then they go back with the, the people who are on like the newest season. They want to hang out and be seen on social media with them. And then they're a few seasons removed. removed. They want to do all the events. And like I remember when I got off the show, uh, I felt used by some of the Bachelor couples because they'd want to hang out with us. And as soon as we hang out, they want to take photos, put it on Instagram. Yeah. And so I feel like that world is very much focused on Instagram and social media. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. I have, like I said, the opposite problem was like, please don't post anything. Yeah. We used to, you know, want to hang out, but like don't want to post anything. Right. Uh, interesting how that works. But Do you have a hard time making friends? Uh, <laughs> not anymore. No, no, no okay. I don't have are a hard people time. Just like... No, because I'm here in Nashville, right? So it depends yeah, on where you where are. You and are. I'm sure it's not the same for you because you don't, you know, live by a political currency right. like I do. But here in Nashville, yeah. hanging out with me would be cool. In LA, hanging yeah. out with me, not so cool. So it depends yeah. on where you are. Like right. there are some places I go where it's, you know, people want to be around me for fake reasons. I'm in yeah. Texas, Florida, Nashville. Yeah. And then certain places where it's like, oh God, no. So it just really depends That's on wild. where you are in the world and what the, the political preference of that area happens to be. That's crazy. Nashville's very kind to me. Nashville's always been good to me for the most part. You feel so. like it's turning a little more liberal though? Nashville's always been liberal, yeah. and it probably always will be liberal, yeah. but Tennessee is so red, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So you know what? They can be weird in Nashville. They can do the 
Whatever they want to do, I don't care. As long as my state is still red and I don't have a state income tax, I don't care. That's Let your thing. freak flag fly. Just don't put it around children. I know, again, a lot to ask yeah. of some people. But I appreciate you taking the yeah. risk of being here in the back of our distillery with somebody like me. And yeah. I'm glad that that stuff doesn't bother you so much. Where can people go to listen to your podcast and all the yeah. stuff that you do? Uh, we just launched a few months ago. It's called In the Booth. Uh, in the booth podcast, find on social media. Um, yeah, that's it. It's a good time. We have conversations with everybody. We'd love for Tommy to come on the show. I'm going to send you an invite. Sure. We're right down. I mean, two roads over. We filmed there. So love Perfect. to have you on. Talk some more. Pick your brain. And yeah. I'll tell you some more of my stories. Perfect. It'll be good. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being one of the people in reality television who you know, has a little intestinal fortitude because there's sometimes a lacking of that. Appreciate so thanks it. so much. Thank you. Michigan Congresswoman and Chairwoman of the Hamas Caucus, Rashida Tlaib, is really trying to convince us the radical Islamic battle cry from the river to the sea is about peace and love. It's time for Final Thoughts. So it's rather ironic, but not at all surprising, that a party that recognizes climate change and white people as the biggest threats facing America would have prominent and very loud representatives regurgitating Hamas talking points and putting out blatantly anti-Semitic narratives such as this. Yes, Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is, no joke, trying to spin the blatant lie that the chant from the river to the sea, the radical Islamic chant used by terrorists, is nothing more than an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. Rashida knows this is a lie, but just in case you don't, let me give you a little background on that aspirational chant. From the river to the sea is, in fact, the motto Hamas has used since the 1960s. It's referenced in the terror group's charter, and the geography that motto encompasses is from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. What is in between the river and the sea? You got it. It's Israel. So that aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence is actually a call to wipe Israel and the Jews in Israel off the flippin' map. Hamas has been quite clear about its goals. They don't mince words or pretend that from the river to the sea is some kind of a patriotic carol of peace and love. Rashida Tlaib knows that full well, just as she knows Israel didn't bomb that hospital weeks ago. But she's attempting to pin a ribbon on it to confuse the impressionable nincompoops chanting it in the streets. But don't for one second think she's using an alternative interpretation. Terrorist sympathizers, plus the well-meaning morons they've recruited, are reading off the same script whether they fully realize it or not. And boy... Isn't it selective that those demanding a ceasefire have happily absorbed Hamas propaganda, but somehow, when Hamas directly and repeatedly says they will repeat October 7th for as long as it takes until Israel is wiped off the map, these puppets make excuses. What's next? Will Tlaib and friends try to convince us that jihad is just a fancier way of saying protest? No, 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 no. That woman and the rest of her Hamas caucus reek of anti-Semitism, and they are becoming more and more brazen about it, which I actually appreciate so the world and the country and the voters can see exactly the kind of repugnant filth the Democrat Party tolerates from its representatives and its leaders. We won't soon forget this, and we will take it all the way to the ballot box next November See you there. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.